this is a discussion about um, the idea or the theme of the Byronic hero in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. I've already sent across the notes for this particular topic to the college website so you guys can get the accompanying notes to this lecture from there. If you have any questions you can either send in your questions here at the podcast or you can actually get in touch with me. My number and my email address are fairly easily available. Anyway, beginning with, I am going to use, uh, by the way, I am going to use the same um, document that I have sent across to the university as an accompanying note and I am going to follow the same uh, sort of um, flow of argument. So please have the document handy and ready in front of you when you guys listen to this. Whatever quotations I am going to use for this lecture are already there in the document as well. So anyway, first to define the Byronic hero, I am going to use a little bit of information and a little bit of quotation, uh, some quotations from a book called The Byronic Hero and the Rhetoric of Masculinity in the 19th Century British Novel. This is a book written by D. Michael Jones. Uh, it is a book available for previewing on Google Books. I've shared the link of this particular book on Google Books in the document that I have just spoken to you about. So you guys can uh, go and access that book whenever you want and read larger portions of this particular topic as well if you so wish. Um, he says that the Byronic hero came into being with the first cantos of the Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which was written by Lord, uh, Lord George Gordon Byron in 1812. Byron was himself a very, very important, very popular, very, um, a, a very, very influential poet, as well as a popular figure, a man himself. He was not just popular as a poet, but as a style icon in certain senses, as a man that people looked up to. He was a celebrity in 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 fairly um, in in fairly twenty first century terms. He was a big, big, big celebrity, not just for women but also for men. Even though he had uh, a limp in his leg. Uh, so he walked with a cane and with a limb and yet he was seen in his times as the epitome of masculine and intellectual uh, sort of sensuality um, and desirability in certain senses. And the child Harold, who is the protagonist of Child Harold's Pilgrimage, uh, is seen by most um, by by most readers, commentators, as well as by uh, as well as by uh, most critics, as being a reflection of uh, Byron himself. So everything that is talked about, or the the figure of the Byronic hero, is not just a is not just a physical uh, is not just a sorry fictional construct per se, but it also derives a lot derives a lot from the actual persona of Lord George Gordon Byron himself. Okay, so coming back to what I was talking about, the Byron Byronic hero uh, also has an impact on the way that masculinity in times of in, in romantic era and then from there onwards on uh, even till the time of the Victorian um, you know uh, even in Victorian era even till the Victorian era the impact of the Byronic hero or the mystery of the Byronic hero is fairly important and influential in how romances are being written and how masculinity is being formulated. And you see clear references of that in um, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre as well. In the early versions, however, according to Michael D. Jones, the Byronic hero displays characteristics which are similar to those of 18th century libertinism. Now you have to have a little bit of an idea of libertinism is, I have given a little bit of an explanation of this even the document in the document as well, but I'm just going to um, uh, you know, uh, discuss it right now as well. Libertinism is actually uh, a philosophy 
philosophy which advocates a rejection of a lot of the moral principles and along with the morality that it rejects it also rejects any sense of responsibility um, that comes with uh, a sense of morality any sense of sexual restraint which comes with a sense of morality as well as any other kinds of social rules which are seen as unnecessary or undesirable at all times now the latin adjective which is libertine actually refers to a freed man and here the freedom that the man sort of espouses the adjective freed is actually used both as an idea of a man who is free uh, from all moral constraints but by an extension of this idea is also uh, it also refers to a social situation which is degraded because there is no one larger sort of moral compass which holds the whole society together so it also it it works at an individual level by the time you talk about it in the uh, in the romantic era it works at the individual as well as at the social level uh, the french word libertin um, it actually uh, appears in the 15th and the 16th century just a little bit before the romantic era and it implies both a free thinking as well as a moral dissolution and sexual debauchery so these are two actually opposing sort of impulses and both of these impulses you see in the byronic hero as well now the idea of freedom is not just the idea of freedom from moral uh, restraints which should be seen as necessarily leading to sexual debauchery or any other kinds of debauchery but it also in terms of the philosophers who agreed with this kind of philosophy it also means that you're free from the constraints the artificial cons- constraints of civilization in certain senses this could be a reference to or this could be seen as coterminous with what rousseau talks about when he talks about how civilization actually corrupts and how a natural way of living is more aligned with a greater sense of morality which is not artificial which has not been created by man so uh, according to libertins according to people who followed this philosophy they also thought that unless you can free yourselves from the moral restraints and rules and regulations which bind your thinking you will never be able to think beyond the restrictions which the society imposes on us so libertinism was also seen as a first step towards being able to think out of the box in a certain sense right so it has both this kind of a positivist meaning but at the same time it also has a meaning of a moral dissolution and sexual debauchery which ultimately it does sort of that is the meaning that becomes popular in certain senses um in the following centuries which means uh, i was talking about the french um, appearance of uh, the appearance of the french word libertin in 15th and 16th century after that the definition sort of shifts so the two uh, two opposing definitions of the word libertin it, they become sort of divorced from each other and um, the idea of moral depravity keeps on getting associated with it and um, rochester is actually developed like the later byronic hero um, um, but he also rejects the unprincipled sort of um, ideas which are associated with libertinism which is that if you remember that there are references when jane actually goes to thornfield hall and after she has become friends with uh, rochester in a certain sense and he tells of how he came to become the guardian of adel uh, adel varens he does talk about um, how he spent a lot of summers a lot of time in paris and in a lot of cities in europe where he had a lot of mistresses adel's mother was also his mistress there are references that adel is actually not his child but at the same time the sexual uh, a sort of a freedom which is according to men which is seen as usual for men the sexual debauchery which is allowed 
uh, which uh, which Rochester also freely engages in is also in a certain sense a representative of the same kind of libertinism of the policy of libertinism um, and Jane is the exact opposite of that of course gender comes to play a very important role in this kind of an opposite um, in, in this kind of an establishment of opposite requirements moral requirements for men and women women cannot have the same kind of moral they don't have access to mor moral libertinism um, without of course severe social consequences that men do have um, and St. Uh, John Rivers is the, is the other sort of an opposite um, example of people who reject moral libertinism completely because they think that morality and morality is coterminous with spirituality so those things go hand in hand constantly but coming back to Byron whenever we talk about the Byronic impulses in um, in in Jane uh, in Jane Eyre, we are only talking about Rochester. However, um, uh, the later versions of the Byronic hero, uh, they do sh show signs of being attached to sensual pleasures, but not the excessive hedonism of libertinism. And you see that that sort of balance in between sensual pleasure, but giving up the, of that sensual pleasure also in Rochester. So this is the later version of how or how the Byronic hero sort of developed through centuries, uh, you see the later version of Byronic hero being represented in um, in Rochester, Edward Rochester. And this rejection of the sexual and sensual license, and I'm still uh, using material from Michael D. Jones's books, he says that this rejection of the sexual and sen sensual license is simultaneously a rejection of the aristocratic class privilege also. So when you reject the sexual and sensual license, you also reject the kind of privilege that is associated with the aristocratic class, exactly what I was talking about. The fact that you can actually go to European cities or to European countries and you can engage in the sexual and the sensual license is uh, is is something that was available only to the aristocratic uh, upper um, you know up, upper middle class or the aristocratic male white men it was only for them that this privilege was actually acceptable but when you reject that sexual license like rochester does later on he also rejects he also willingly gives away the the, the privilege that comes with um, with with his belonging to the aristocratic aristocratic class that he actually belongs to and it is by assuming that everybody who belongs to that class would want to make use of that kind of an aristocratic license that people start believing that he actually is going to marry blanche ingram rather than Jane Eyre and in fact this could be one of the ways in which you can actually differentiate between uh, Edward Rochester as well as between St. John Rivers as well. St. John Rivers does not belong to the aristocratic class. So for the middle classes, for the lower middle classes, for the proletariat, the idea of a morality, of a spiritualized morality, which gave credence to or which gave utmost importance to hard work, to um, to a non-deviant um, non kind of uh, sex, uh, sorry, non-deviant kind of religious morality above everything else as a validation of good character is something that was um, is something that was um, used only and only for the lower classes the upper classes could give up this kind of a religious morality or spirituality excessive morality excessive spirituality and still not be uh, you know censured for it in a certain sense coming back to what michael d jones was talking about 
um, and this rejection of the aristocratic class privilege which which Rochester also does towards the end of the uh, uh, you know towards the later half of the novel when he actually professes his love for Jane Eyre um, it leads us to the second important feature of the Byronic hero uh, the first important feature you will remember is the kind of problematic relationship that he shares with the uh, philosophy of libertinism uh, you give in to some aspects of libertinism but you hold back in some aspects of libertinism there is a sense of morality while also giving up the constraining morality which uh, which which um, which uh, holds you back from understanding uh, or um, understanding how the society works because you can only understand it when you are a little away from the moors when you look at it from the outside in a certain sense you can only look at it from the outside when you transgress the boundaries of morality so that kind of a metaphor also goes on but the second aspect of the byronic hero is uh, the idea of the byronic hero as a wanderer as a wanderer who does not actually belong to his class somebody who's who's a perennial outsider now this rejection uh, of the aristocratic class might actually look like it actually it, it endears him to the rising middle class and this was the primary um, reader base for a lot of the writers in Victorian era this is the first time if you remember we have had a discussion about how uh, the industrialization and the capitalization of the markets actually leads to a rising number of people who can read, who are who have basic literacy, who don't have intellectual education, but they can actually read novels. And so there is a rising market for populist kind of literature and people like uh, Charlotte Bronte can actually write novels for the masses. And so the that the market forces of whatever sells should be written or would be written because it makes profits that sort of comes into being here so for the byronic hero when he rejects the aristocratic class privilege it might seem as if he would endear himself to the larger number of readers uh, the readers of charlotte bronte who would be looking at um, edward rochester as somebody that they can identify with uh, but um, this idea of wandering usually also reflects in the Byronic hero, in the character of the Byronic hero with a lack or a loss of domestic life. And in the first half of Edward Rochester's narrative, that lack or loss of domestic life is fairly evident and not just once, but and, but multiple times. When you come to know of, of his life with Bertha Mason, of course, that is an example of failed domesticity. And it has a lot of other political aspects that we have, some of which we have discussed in class, some of which I'm going to discuss later on as well. But there's also a lack or a loss of domesticity because of how he chooses to live with Adele Vance's mother and then later on. Uh, when he rejects her as well, then how he comes back and lives in Thornfield Hall. He lives only periodically. Uh, he lives there sometimes and then he goes away and then he's perennially wandering. He comes back um, suddenly and then he goes away. Suddenly he does not actually seem to have a sense of um, stasis anywhere. And domestic life does not necessarily mean having a conjugal relationship, having a wife. That, of course, is something that is denied to Rochester. That is the reason why uh, Jane and Rochester cannot get married because it, it is revealed that Bertha Mason is still alive. But at the same time, because... Um, uh, because uh, he he re he rejects the idea of domesticity completely, at least till the time that he meets Jane. So the idea of domesticity is problematized, if nothing else. 
uh, in jones's words uh, and i am giving a quote here the byronic hero remains outside the fulfilling promise of a lasting and transformative domesticity as well as a cynical libertinism of his own class so he rejects both the uh, you know both both the cynical libertinism of aristocracy but also the prospect of a lasting and transformative domesticity which is the only thing which is sort of the salvaging aspect of or the salvaging metaphor of the middle class the middle class seek a sort of a salvation in the hard working hyper moralized and hyper spiritualized domesticity that you see um, through the th- you know through the kind of um, through the kind of things that um, brocklehurst for example talks about and you see that being evident in a lot of charles dickens's novels including hard times as well now uh, one can actually see the impact of this middle class ethic uh, in the increased morality which is evident in jane so when you come to how jane also partakes in certain senses of this trope of the byronic hero you see that this middle class ethic or this increased morality is fairly evident in jane we have talked about this in the early sections when jane uh, talks to brocklehurst we talked about how the the idea or the literature of self improvement or the narrative of self help right or uh, the narrative of uh, the narrative of rags to riches how that was gaining currency currency in victorian literature we've talked about it in class if there are any confusions we can um, have another lecture about that also but hard work and religious devotion they become in certain senses uh, the the coda through which the lower classes and the middle class and the rising bourgeoisie actually live by the byronic hero actually rejects both of these uh, but he also rejects the possibility of um or the chance of moral regeneration which is given to middle class through religious sacrifice and hard work and this moral regeneration is ultimately what jane is sort of working towards we've talked about this in class as well the religious sacrifice is fairly overtly shown in st john's rivers um but also in jane eyre she becomes who she becomes not because she has a lot of money but because she works very hard to create a sense of moral um, moral uh, you know superiority which sets her apart so she is a lady not because she has a lot of money but because her moral compass is set exactly where it should be within the larger victorian context which is why she gets the knight or the the money as well as the man at the end in certain senses which is why she has the fairy tale ending and the classes and the but as far as uh, rochester is concerned this crisis between uh, being partly of the middle class of the aristocracy partly of the aristocratic class this tussle or this crisis between the two in certain senses comes to define him so he has aspects of both but at the same time he is an outsider to both and this brings us to the third important feature of the byronic hero which is the all pervading mystery about him nobody can really understand exactly what he is about which is the first kind of 
um, which is the first uh, sense that you get of Rochester. The first time that Jane meets him, she cannot really figure out what he's about. Then, sir, uh, then suddenly, peel by peel, in a certain sense, a lot of his mysteries are revealed. The fact that he has a child, the child is not his. The life that he led, the light of the the life of libertinism that he led in Europe. And then later on, the uh, you know whether he loves Blanche Ingram or he doesn't love Blanche Ingram. Then he wants to marry Jane. Then he is not able to marry Jane because he already has a wife. The story behind how um, his domestic life was ruined and so on and so forth. So there are certain levels of mysteries. The mystery of the Gothic here surrounds more surrounds Rochester much more than it surrounds the actual Gothic castle or Jane herself. And this. This mystery is also aided by a certain sense of lack, which is associated with the Byronic hero, which means that he is constantly in search of a wholeness. And this search for wholeness or this lack, the fact that there is something missing in him, that comes to define the Byronic hero. That is, that becomes the raison d'être for his wandering. The reason why he wanders is because he is looking for something that can actually complete him, which is a fairly, which is a poetic idiom of how you define the Byronic hero. Now, uh, coming to the last point that I want to make about the Byronic hero uh, is the ease with which the Byronic hero, despite a lot of his other moral, you know, moral and um, sort of spiritual superiority, the ease with which the Byronic masculinity or the Byronic hero actually assumes a position of superiority to everybody else. Now, uh, as far as the social aspect of the Byronic hero is concerned, which you see in a lot of works of Lord George Gordon Byron, like the Jaur as well, uh, the Jaur is a poem written by George Gordon Byron, which is, in in, in certain senses, it's it's um, it's it's a personification of, or it's an exposition of the Byronic hero, and the characteristics of the Byronic hero fairly evidently, uh, but uh, you see it in other places as well. So the social level, the sense of superiority. Uh, of the Byronic masculinity actually comes from the fact that he can actually step away from society and he can take an objective view of what is happening so he understands what the right and wrong of the society much more than other people who are entrenched in in its mores uh, but at an individual level uh, the assumption of a position of superiority comes with respect to class as well as gender roles. And one can see it in a lot of places when you see that uh, every time, almost every time during the courtship period, Rochester refers to Jane almost um, consistently as a scared little bird that he can comfort, that he will put in a cage and so on and so forth. Jane constantly hints that she is definitely not comfortable with these metaphors, which suggest a sort of a master-slave dialectic. She constantly tries to push push that push the dialective away and um, and you know put herself out of the narrative of being the scared little bird but the narrative that met, that is the meta narrative in certain senses uh, which operates throughout that uh, portion of the text but that but this impulse also defines the first phase of the relationship of Jane and Rochester and it's this very narrative which gets inverted towards the end and I'm going to come to that um, in a minute as well uh, and one can see a lot of the examples of the say the same master slave dialective uh, dialectic um, in uh, Rochester and Bertha's relationship as well we've talked about this in class when we um, read out the portions about Bertha's um, uh, Bertha's background 
so please go back to those class notes as well now the uh, last book that i wanted to discuss um, the second book of course and the last book that i wanted to discuss here is a uh, is a book called uh, bloom's guide to bloom's guides to charlotte bronte this has been written by a critic called harold bloom harold bloom is one of the most important critics of the 20th century he has written a lot of uh, small um introductory books about um about some works of fiction uh, this is one of them this book is also available for preview on google books i have shared the link to this book as well in the document that i have sent to the college please take a look at that um and harold bloom become begins his introduction of uh, charlotte bronte's jane eyre you can actually read as much of the book as is available on google books it's a good book especially as an introduction he he also uh, begins his introduction with the discussion of rochester as a byronic hero and he also talks about how two other important uh, critics of the 21st century uh, feminist critics uh, and gender studies as well sandra gilbert and susan gooper who've written books like mad woman in the attic i'm going to talk about this particular book i have talked actually about this book uh, once or twice in class before but i'm going to record another lecture about the female characters and the comparison between jane blanche and bertha in another lecture so i'm going to talk about this at length there um but anyway coming back to what bloom talks about gilbert and gooba's work uh, he says that they also highlight the essentially byronic traits of rochester but also that jane herself has some byronic traits now these are the subtle ways in which charlotte bronte actually uh, creates a sense of uh, revolt or rebellion even in the way that she characterizes her heroines byron uh, byronic heroes were necessarily predicated by their masculinity and by giving jane a little bit of the characteristics of the byronic hero um charlotte bronte actually creates a heroine who is fairly different from the feminine ideal um and um anyway we have talked a little bit about this in earlier lectures i keep on saying that because we've had discussions about these in earlier classes if you cannot understand it please get back to me as well so gilbert and goober says uh, say and i'm giving a quote here quote begin the byronic pride and passion of jane herself finish quotes are something that sets jane apart in the words of bloom again quote the sexual intensity is matched by that of jane whose relation to rochester is a barely idealized version of charlotte bronte's obsession with lord byron who was at once who was at once the ernest hemingway and the clark gable of the romantic era now for those of you who have no idea who clark gable was he was a hollywood uh, he was a hollywood superstar 1930s to 1950s and 60s if i am not wrong and he was called the king of hollywood he was the most popular and the most charismatic and the most popular um uh, you know um actor of the time uh, bloom goes on to say that charlotte bronte actually symbolically castrates rochester while maiming and taming him into being a suitable mate for jane at the end of the novel at the end of the novel what happens is that it is rochester who needs to be taken care of by jane he becomes like a little bird who needs to be tended and who needs to be uh, brought back to health jane becomes the dominant uh, partner amongst the two and so in that sense 
she also doesn't need rochester's money at the end because her uncle john ayer has actually left her a substantial amount of money not as much as rochester but still she doesn't need to rely on him so towards the end the relationship that jane ayer and rochester actually share becomes much more equitable than what rochester was actually offering her um in the middle of the book that of being his mistress uh, with a lot of money so the ideal of the relationship that is established towards the end of the novel is a uh, by rejecting other kinds of relationships which are much more violent which are much more hegemonic which are much more sexist um which is true the master slave relationship in a much more extreme way that in itself is a political statement that charlotte bronte is actually making he focuses also on the ending of the novel uh, this is bloom right so bloom does talk about the you know the ending of the novel much more and this is his introduction that i'm still talking about he quotes this one line from the end where jane says quote and quote reader i married him now if you read this uh, sentence very carefully it's a wonderful reversal of the subject object position uh, between jane and rochester if you remember earlier it was rochester who was in the subject position who was in the position of the master who was taking care of the injured bird which was jane but here even in the narrative language that charlotte bronte uses it is jane who says reader i married him so she assumes the subject position she assumes the master position she is the subject and he is the object who is being married in a certain sense so you see this is a wonderful reversal is fairly subtle but it there is a clear reversal there the fact that the marriage has taken place with jane in the authorial position of writing the decision and ending the fairy tale and ending the fairy tale in a way that is more suitable to her that idea is driven home at the end of the novel bloom calls this a radical new view of adam and eve and compares it with uh, the way that catherine unshaw in emily bronte's wuthering heights very very famous novel very very famous lines catherine unshaw proclaims in wuthering heights i am heathcliff for those of you who have not read uh, wuthering heights if you have the time you should definitely read it now that you're home anyway if you haven't read about it um it's uh, it's one of the most remarkable um uh, works of the victorian era um now coming back to what bloom talks about jane eyre bloom highlights two other important themes in the novel as far as the byronic hero part of the text is concerned theme is concerned um i mean uh, you could just take a look at the notes and i think this is sufficient discussion for that but i just want to end with two other sort of you know um sideline notes that bloom also talks about because we're talking about bloom so i want to end with this he says that there are two very very important themes in the novel jane eyre which appear as part of the english novel tradition the first is the theme of the heroine in distress uh, who is threatened by a duplicitous lover here the duplicitous lover is rochester who tries to con her into marrying him when he is already married uh, this actually predates the genre of the gothic of the victorian times it 
it uh, exists as far as the English novel tradition, as far back as the English novel tradition actually exists. You can also see this in the earliest novels, which are epistolary, like Clarissa and Pamela by Samuel Richardson. I think we've t talked about this in class. Otherwise, look up Samuel Richardson yourself. Um, the second theme is the looming presence or question of uncertain parentage, which is usually resolved at the end. The idea of parentage or lineage and of the, the the fact that the hero and the heroine have to be of um, you know of respectable lineage the idea that lineage supersedes everything else is a fairly aristocratic idea but you but this is a theme that you see in a lot of uh, you know throughout the tradition of the english novel the resolution at the end is usually accompanied by an inheritance which confers wealth as well as status and if you see it, this is exactly what happens with Jane Eyre. So these are two important themes that Bloom highlights are usually found in English novel traditions, which are also found in Jane Eyre, which make it um, in, in a certain sense, uh, which, which, which places it in the earliest tradition or in the tradition of the English novel from the earliest times. So I'm going to stop here. If there is any uh, question, if there is any doubt, if you guys want to ask uh, anything, my phone number, my email addresses are easily available. But at the same time, you can also post your questions here. So 